Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagra Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Democrats have forged a $3.5 trillion deal to push forward their key legislative priorities, and they maintain that they can do that degree of spending without raising taxes on the American people. But it's unclear whether enough Democrats will support the package, much less Republicans. Meanwhile, budget and confirmation hearings continue, as does the appropriations markup process in Beijing. A triumphal and increasingly belligerent Xi Jinping celebrated the centennial of the Chinese Communist Party, while in In Moscow, Vladimir Putin appears to have wholly ignored Joe Biden's concerns about Russia's malign role in cyberspace and elsewhere. Back in Washington, new books are highlighting the extraordinary concerns that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, had that Donald Trump might attempt to coup in his waning days in office. Here to discuss all that and more are Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners, former Pentagon comptroller Bob Hale, Dr. Scott Harold of the RAND Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, and former Pentagon uh, Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Great to be here, Vago. Glad to be here, Vago. Thanks for having us. Great to be here, Vago. Great to be back, Vago. Absolute pleasure, guys. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fincon Thierry Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And General Motors Defense sponsors our coverage of technology. And before we get started, a reminder to check out our weekly Cavus Ships podcast with our very own contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and producer, Chris Cervello, who take a deep dive into naval issues this week analyzing the report by retired Marine Corps Lieutenant General Rooster Schmidl and retired U.S. Navy Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, the executive director of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, uh, who co-authored the report on the fighting culture of the United States Navy surface fleet that was released this week. Mark was our guest on uh, the program uh, Tuesday. Michael. Very busy week uh, up there on the Hill. Obviously, the AUMF, uh, the authorization of the use of military force repeals, appropriations mark, uh, a plan for floor passage uh, infrastructure, the $3.5 trillion legislative package, uh, and then the security supplemental, right, that's going to impact the the National Guard. Start us off wherever you think it makes sense. Great. Well, we'll start off with infrastructure, and I think we'll probably be talking about infrastructure uh, almost every every week until the end of the year. And uh, my prediction is, I think we're gonna end up with uh, nothing. But you did mention you know, $3.5 trillion deal. And you know, it does not include, remember the over trillion dollar uh, bipartisan deal. So we're talking in excess of, well in excess of $4 trillion uh, in spending. And you know, that deal is really a deal among Democrats on the budget committee and, uh, and the White House. So now they have to sell it to the rest of the Democrats. And that's really going to be a challenge. I mean, remember the progressives Initially, we're looking for a $6 trillion uh, package. And then you had some moderates like uh, Joe Manchin looking for a price tag around uh, you know, $2 trillion. And you know, Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin, for example, had not committed their support to a deal, which is really going to need every Democrat in the Senate, not to mention the House. And Manchin's already on record saying he's concerned about inflation. He's concerned about fossil fuel provisions that are uh, being talked about in this, in this. And he wants to make sure it's all paid for. 
Uh, and that's going to raise issues as well. So if it's not going to add to the debt, the pay fors and taxes are going to become issues for the Democrats and, and issues that can be used against them in the campaign. Uh, at the same time, the progressives, uh, Congresswoman uh, Jay Powell, who is the leader of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, has stopped short of promising uh, support until they see the details. Um, you know, and on top of that, uh, you know, the administration now is talking about adding uh, immigration provisions uh, to this package. Right. Uh, which further could jeopardize it. The progressives obviously are thrilled with that. I mean, Ocasio-Cortez came out yesterday uh, basically saying uh, that, thank goodness for this, for this new large package, uh, comparing the, calling the bipartisan $1 trillion package a tiny and pathetic bipartisan bill and said that we will tank the bipartisan infrastructure bill unless we also pass the reconciliation bill. And if they try and strip immigration reform, uh, and, and childcare and the other things that are important to them, uh, it's a no-go. So, you know, I, I think this has got a, a very tough road to hoe and, and, and perils uh, the bipartisan package, which right now, it's, you know, support is softening uh, for that. I mean, I think we talked about the rollout and how that created bumps in the road uh, for Biden and created some softening among Republicans. But there are two Republican senators out of the five um, who endorsed the package said, you know, negotiations are still happening and their support could waver uh, as things shift as the text comes together. And I even talked to Democrats who were part of that negotiation, who are frustrated with the White House for trying to change some of the things and add things that weren't initially agreed upon in that bipartisan package. So this still has quite a ways to go, even if the Senate can pass, you know, their, their budget resolution. Now, you mentioned uh, AUMFs. So Biden is, you know, continuing to face a lot of pressure on the Hill. Uh, to deal with these Iranian-backed militias that continue to attack uh, American forces. And we did have one, obviously, U.S. retaliation, but the militia groups have not stopped. And Republicans feel that repealing this, you know, the Iraq authorizations would unnecessarily restrict Biden while the Iranian proxies continue to attack American troops. And it would send the wrong uh, message to terror groups about uh, U.S. intentions. So, you know, the House has repealed you know, three of the AUMFs in 1957, 1991, and 2002 AUMFs. So the Senate has got to work through its own process. And even if they can overcome a filibuster and pass something, it will be different than the versions that the House passed. So they'll have to reconcile this through conference. And if there's not enough time, there's already talk about sticking this onto the NDAA. And if those AUMFs end up in the NDAA, that is something that could imperil uh, the passage of the NDA at the end of the day, because it's going exactly. to need a substantial number of Republican votes. And speaking of things that are imperiled, now, with, you know, appropriations, there's been a lot of action this week, a lot of markups, had a long, a lot of long nights this week. Um, but the Democratic plan has changed. We, we mentioned in a previous podcast that they were going to put two minibuses on the floor and divide up the 12 appropriations bills among those two minibuses. However, now the plan is just one minibus of seven appropriations bills. So five will not be considered before the August recess. And among those five are the ones that really matter to national security, defense, homeland security, state and foreign ops, uh, legislative branch, and uh, commerce justice science, which has the, the NASA portfolio. Um, so that's uh, a, that they probably will try and bring us up in September, but I'm not so sure they can even do that then because September, they're, they're about to go on a seven-week break after they're here for two weeks, and uh, they'll have to pass a CR at that point. Uh, and figure out what they're going to do, because right now they do not have enough Democrat votes to pass these bills on their own. Talk, uh, talk very briefly about the security supplemental as well and how that affects the National Guard. Yes. So that's another big fight that's brewing. So as we talked in previous podcasts, the House passed security supplemental by just one vote. So uh, Senator Leahy, who is the chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee, offered uh, a security supplemental of $3.7 billion. 
Now, his Republican counterpart, Senator Shelby, countered with three, uh, 362 million. Uh, incredible difference between the two. And Shelby's just saying, look, we just need to pay for the Capitol Police and, and the Guard. However, the National Guard is saying that their bill alone is in excess of $520 million uh, to, to recoup all the costs that they racked up when they were deployed to the Capitol complex. And without that patch, by August, and that just gives us two weeks, the Guard is saying that readiness will suffer and training and maintenance will be significantly downsized. And this is at a time where we're into the summer where wildfire and hurricane season is about to ramp up. So uh, Shelby, I mean, um, Leahy is saying that he's going to offer a, a, another offer to, um, to Senator Shelby, but the timing on that is, is uncertain. Um, and, and I just want to point out to, to the audience, right, Bernie Sanders is chairman of the Budget Committee in the Senate. And so a lot of this is being driven. And he was one of the people who wanted a $6 trillion package. And so from his standpoint, it's like, look how much I've compromised, whereas it looks like virtually, or, you know, many other members, particularly those in the middle, uh, you know, GOP is not going to go for anything that's big, but even Democratic members at this point uh, are a little skittish. Let me just ask you a very brief political question, uh, because we, we do need to get to the rest of our panel. But question that a lot of folks are asking me, whether they're in the administration, out of the administration, is whether or not Democrats control will, will maintain control of the House and Senate. And it's a very, very close run thing. And it seems as though certainly the Progressive Caucus doesn't seem to understand that they don't have the vote, right? They're like, we're going to drive this through. We're going to do this through record. You, you can't do any of it without Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, right? I mean, so it's, it's a non-starter. It, are Democrats helping themselves or hurting themselves? Because there are a lot of things Biden's doing that are appealing to independents and to moderates. On the other hand, you have this rhetoric that is coming from a very, very small group of people. Uh, Eric Adams won in New York, was not a progressive that won. He was a middle of the road guy. What's your sense on how the body's going and what members of Congress are talking about? Because if if Democrats don't maintain the House and the Senate, it's a completely different ballgame. I mean, Joe Biden but, could get end up getting impeached. <laughs> but yeah, but the Senate wouldn't be able to convict. But um, look, I, I think you're you're exactly right. I I don't think the Democrats uh, are helping themselves here, and the progressives certainly are not helping uh, themselves. And again, it's not just about Mansion and Cinema. There are plenty of Senate Democrats who have very tough reelections coming up who are very grateful that Manchin and Cinema are at least willing to speak up and say things that they feel that they can't say. And then the House, I mean, Pelosi can only afford to lose four votes. Uh, and believe me, there, there's no way that right now they have the votes to pass this. There's not a single House Democratic staffer that I've spoken to that feels that this $3.5 trillion American Families Plan is going to pass. Uh, so uh, I think that and, and there are a lot of Democrats that are uh, on, on the House side that are privately expressing their concerns, again, about reelection. These are Democrats that won Republican seats in 18 and now are at risk of losing those seats uh, in the off year election in 22 if they vote for higher taxes, if they vote for more debt, if they vote for more entitlements and increased spending. Bob, a uh, lot, lot there to chew on. What's your sense, especially as we move through uh, appropriations? Um, you know, you've got some thoughts on the Milley matter as well. Walk us through, you know, what sort of jumped out at you this week that's worth commenting on. Well, thanks, Bago. I mean, uh, Michael covered a lot. Let me let me focus on defense uh, and the House passage of the defense appropriations bill by a straight party line vote uh, because the Republicans object uh, to the fact that there's not uh, more money in there for defense. And I think, as Michael suggested, it's going to be very difficult to have. I don't think you could pass the defense bill straight up, the appropriations bill, certainly in the House. And I suspect before they're done, they will have to group together defense with some of the non-defense bills 
that the uh, that the Democrats want passed because they've got some substantial appropriations uh, increases in those bills and use that as a way to try to get enough Democrats to support the defense bill. And they may have to add a little bit to defense. All of this is probably a November kind of thing. Um, let me mention one more ticking time bomb, and that's the debt ceiling, uh, which goes into effect on July 31st, again, at whatever level it's at on that day. Uh, they probably got about two months after that through extraordinary measures before they'll face a hard uh, uh, hit on the debt ceiling, which would which would interfere with the ability of the United States government to pay its bills. Um, and it'll be an action forcing event because they'll have to do something. Uh, they could put it off and group it all together for November, um, or they could try to cobble together some kind of compromise, but it will become, uh, it will further complicate the already complicated landscape uh, that Michael uh, so well pointed out. Um, uh, just a word on the Millie thing, since you mentioned it, uh, an extraordinary set of comments, which to my knowledge, General Milley has not denied, and therefore I have to assume are fundamentally true, uh, to see a, a, a sitting chairman of the Joint Chiefs make statements about that, like that about a president. I don't think it's going to affect the budget debate, but I think in the longer term and the history and the judgments about Trump, it will have an effect. Uh, and so uh, I think it's, it's news, not just for this week, but for the longer term. Back to you, Vago. Um, and, and I want to talk a little bit about that uh, later in the program, because I'm not necessarily sure this moves any particular needle and indeed plays into the Trump strategy of sort of separating the officer class and trying to paint them as closeted liberals or, um, you, you know, from from the salt of the earth, uh, if, 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 if you will. Right. I mean, inept generalship has been, uh, you know, a, a weapon that he's uh, wielded against anybody who doesn't simply agree with him. Um, Byron, talk to us a little bit uh, about what jumped out at you, a whole series of thoughtful notes on your uh, part uh, on, on, you know, appropriations, the winners, the losers, uh, what it all means. And I also want to talk a little bit about nominations with you. Uh, start us off on what you thought were sort of the most interesting well, elements. Well, look, of, a couple of things. I, I agree with Michael on just kind of the outlook for the broader infrastructure spending packages. I mean, the, the simple fact the matter is the clock's going to run out here. And, and I think the issue for defense is it's a given you're going to have a continuing resolution to start FY22. You know, the question is, can you get a bill done by December or, you know, do we slip into March or May or worst case, you know, do we get the full year CR scenario? So, you know, we're on the eve of another uh, round of earnings season. It's going to be interesting what management's kind of say and posture on this. I don't think it's going to matter for 2021 company uh, fundamentals, but it sure does matter for 2022 and beyond. Um, I do think, you know, another point that's more a market observation, the whole debate on inflation is really very curious in Washington, D.C., because the bond market is saying they're not worried. Um the 10-year remains at 1.3%. There's been some very good analysis I've seen that's kind of peeled back the latest CPI number that showed a lot of the inflation that was evidence was really just some of the things coming back online, like travel, like hotels, um, airlines, uh, airline prices that had been most damaged by the pandemic. So there's a very different view in markets on this inflation debate than I think what's playing out in Washington, D.C. Um, 
you know, and I, I suppose next on deck, you know, we had the hack uh, D, the House Appropriations Defense Subcommittee report come out. You know, one little nuance from that was the numbers showed that, yeah, there was a cut to research, development, test, and evaluation. But when you really peel back some of the details, they just transferred a, I think it was a $900 million program, next gen software program to O&M, to Navy O&M. So that cut optically really wasn't much of a cut at all. Now, there were some other changes that were kind of interesting in classified programs. But again, these weren't big new movers. And nominations, we can talk about that if you want, Vago. Go ahead. Well, I mean, so let's uh, let's let's talk about nominations a little bit, right? Um, this administration has been so there was an expectation that we've got uh, binders of, of of people not to resuscitate an old uh, crack. You know, folks were going to fill uh, jobs. There was an expectation that some of this had been sort of at least mapped out. If Michelle Flournoy had gone in, then Lloyd Austin went in and sort of the book was was out the door. There was also a Democratic concern, legitimate, that we wouldn't have the Senate. So um and and now Democrats have put hold on holds on highly qualified people, whether they're Frank Kendall or Heidi Shue, uh, demanding recusals, which are just absurd. Um, and and now you have Mike Brown, uh, somebody highly competent who was expected to go in as the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. Um, you know, news reports are that there's an ongoing investigation regarding uh, hiring, uh, and so. Mike concluded, hey, look, I'll just go to DIU, you know, go back to DIU because, the, you know, I don't want to cloud the, the whole process. You studied where we are, where we're going. What, what are the things that you take away from this? Okay, well, um, partnership for Public Service has a very good rundown on, on this on a website that they, I guess, also do with the Washington Post. And so if you look at, first off, um, yes, the Biden administration is well behind the Obama and Bush administrations in terms of people that they've actually had confirmed by the Senate. But actually, at this point, they're, they're slightly ahead of uh, the Trump administration. Now, you know, the numbers kind of flip in, in August, which is going to be interesting because you, you for DOD and for the rest of the federal government, <clears throat> we have had, you know, ongoing confirmation hearings. But to your point, there have been some holds. Um, you know, last last week, this week, we had the uh, the confirmation hearing for uh, Secretary of Navy and some of the other people who've been nominated for DOD positions. If you look at the Partnership for Public Service data, there are 58 Senate confirmed positions for DOD. Now, I'm excluding military judges from that number. Um, there's been no nominee announced for 27 of those positions, but a lot of them are kind of at the assistant secretary level. Um, so, you know, at the senior level, when you get into the secretary, the deputy sec def, obviously they've been confirmed, um, under secretaries, uh, you know, we still have two that haven't been nominated. You mentioned, um, uh, Mike Brown now because of acquisition and sustainment, that position is now open. And I guess there's a, um, undersecretary for the Navy that, that still hasn't, we haven't seen a nominee there. So, there's progress, and I, I guess Bob can certainly weigh in on this, but my sense is, you know, we're now entering the buildings really rolling up its sleeves on the FY23 Palm, and I think, you know, there's enough leadership in there to really, civilian leadership to kind of really start steering this ship um, going forward. And again, that's going to depend on some of these holds getting lifted and some of the people who have had their Senate confirmation hearings uh, and, and up here they've been passed that uh, they'll be they'll be confirmed before the Senate recesses in August. Over. 
Jim and uh, Bob, I mean, how badly does this affect things when you don't have enough senior civilians in there helping make the decisions? Well, I'd be more pessimistic than Byron. I think the absence of confirmed political appointees is serious that, you know, the day-to-day business will go ahead. The senior civil servants will make the trains run on time, but there won't be, uh, they won't be able to make changes. Change leadership really comes from the political appointees. And I, and I think acting, uh, people acting in, in those roles aren't as willing or able uh, to bring about change. So uh, I'm disappointed and uh, concerned, particularly about the Mike Brown thing, uh, but for, for all of them, uh, Frank Kendall holes. Uh, 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 so I, I think it's a you know, moderately serious problem that, that will mean we'll get less change, uh, desirable change out of the Department of Defense. Over. Um, Jim, uh, let me uh, bring you to, and, and there is hope, right, that, uh, that uh, Heidi Frank uh, and, a, and a number of other people are going to lurch forward, hopefully, uh, sooner, sooner rather than later. Um, but again, right, going back to Michael, we're, we're up against a calendar here that could actually push you uh, all the way back to September if for whatever reason uh, things uh, things don't uh, move, move ahead the way they should. Uh, Jim, let me uh, turn uh, to you now. You've been very patient uh, through this uh, process, uh, through, through the discussion so far. President marshaled allies during his visit to Europe. You were kind enough to join us for a couple of weeks to give us updates on that. We solidified the notion that a cyber attack could be a uh, Article 5 uh, trigger. President met with Putin to drive home his concerns uh, and clarify the potential penalties for Russia if it didn't behave itself. In the wake of that meeting, you know, as I mentioned, the Revile, uh, Revil, or whatever it's called, um, gang uh, conducted the largest ransomware attack in history, netted $70 million. We had Dmitry Alperovich join us for the cyber report uh, this week, along with uh, John Co-Francesco of Fortress Information Security and Justin Sherman of the Atlantic Council. And Dimitri's sense was, hey, they're spending their money on their on the Black Sea, right? It's unlikely this group was shut down by Putin or intelligence agencies. They just got a lot of money and pulled up pulled up stakes. We saw Russian uh, Russians harassing uh, British warships in uh, the Black Sea, and as well uh, NATO uh, and and Allied exercises in the in the Mediterranean. What does the administration have to do? Right? It announced the task force on on ransomware. That's good. What does this administration have to do? In, in dealing with Russia and how does the United States need to respond? Because, you know, as you pointed out, Vladimir Putin will use every opportunity to press his advantage in every possible way, unless he's countered. Well, you know, uh, it takes us back to the previous discussion. What will this administration do? You know, a lot of that depends on the, uh, the energy and the ideas, the creativity and the drive of political appointees who come in. Uh, and, and just to just to say, as a longtime civil servant in OSD policy, um, you know, I've been acting DASD. I've been acting uh, and, and the most really you can do is tread water. Um, and you, you know, you, you're there to keep things ready for the political appointee who comes in. And hopefully that political appointee is someone who uh, will take the steering wheel and hit the gas. And we start going off in the direction that, that the president wants to go in. And of course, as civil servants, we're there to help make that happen. Um, so to, to, to answer your question about Russia and this type of thing, and, and how do we you know, respond to these various things, respond, we have to do. Uh, but our response is not going to be what it should be without having key leaders in these uh, very important uh, political appointee slots, not just in OSD, but also in the interagency. We're not going to go anywhere. And so 
you know, the way we look overseas, just to talk about my patch, which is Europe, NATO, you know, the way we look in terms of how we put together our government after an election and the holdup in Congress and this type of thing is just, we just, we look like it's amateur hour. I, I just, uh, you know, it's, it's just a pity. But, uh, but, but to go to, to Russia and, uh, and Putin, just, just a couple of things. One is that, um, you know, it is, it's too early to judge right now how effective the, the first meeting was. I mean, uh, that was only uh, the down payment in terms of Biden going in and talking right. to Putin and those two trying to, to, to judge each other. Um, a lot of what we're seeing in the Black Sea and in other places, um, uh, you know, in terms of a Russian intercepts, that's been going on since I was the Dasty, you know, since uh, certainly since Crimea and even before. So that's not necessarily something new. Uh, that's still there. Um, and uh, and I don't think that's going anywhere either. I'm not so sure that was top on Biden's priority. Top on his priority, of course, was the ransomware and the cyber attacks and uh, making sure that uh, Putin knew that unlike the previous president, uh, Biden wasn't going to stand for it. And this is the important point. You know, Obama talked about red lines uh, publicly. And of course, the famous story is um, it, it turned out not to, to be much uh, to those to that uh, dec uh, that declaration about red lines, and so you have uh, now Biden dealing with a Putin who who might judge whether it's Biden when he was the vice president or just the U.S. generally that when it comes to the president talking about red lines or warning Putin not to do something that then that we're not going to back it up, and I think that's what Putin is beginning to see or to to watch in terms of how the administration is gonna go about dealing with these cyber attacks. Now, Russia isn't necessarily specifically behind and orchestrating them. The, uh, they are some of them. Uh, the others though seem to be coming from these criminal gangs that are being given, you know, this, uh, being given right. comfort in Russia. So, uh, so Putin is responsible for giving those people uh, support as well. So, um, and a lot of those things probably were in the pipeline even before um, the Putin-Biden meeting. So the, the thing is this, whatever Biden said to Putin and has said subsequently, if they have been on the phone, there's also working groups, US-Russian uh, working groups coming together. I think there's a meeting tomorrow of one of them uh, to talk about this stuff. Whatever we're saying to Putin about the cost that Putin will have to bear to support these people or for the Russian state itself to do something, we have to back it up. We have to back it up. We can't sit there and warn and draw red lines uh, as we've done in the past and not back them up. And Putin is just watching to see what we're going to do along those lines. And then the final point, I don't want to go on too long, but the final point is that what's difficult about responding in the cyber world is, you know, we do that quietly. We don't go and trumpet saying this is what we're going to do or this is what we did when the electricity went off. We did that. So we, we, right. we're, we're going to have to come up with ways in which we can take this offensive capability that we have and make it uh, a, a deterrence tool by being public about it, because deterrence doesn't work so well when it's quiet. You know, everyone has got to see it. And unlike going in and sinking a ship, uh, when you're using cyber, it's done, it usually is done quietly so as not to give away your tactics and techniques. So we're going to have to show um, if there's going to be a cost. Uh, to an action taken by Putin. We're going to have to show that we meant our word, that we're going to not stand for it and, and have a response. And it's going to have to be public. The whole world uh, is, is watching 
right? Um, you know, when you were in office, and I, and I apologize, you know, I, I uh, you know, I, I've thought of you as a confirmed official in part because you've done confirmed jobs so often in your career uh, that I've always assumed like, oh yeah, you know, you went through a confirmation process instead of being a diligent uh, civil ser- uh, servant. Um, but one of the things, you, you know, we, we, we talk about, and sometimes we as Americans, you know, what, what we do in Afghanistan is actually watched around the world. Our allies and partners see that. Uh, when we uh, disregard or uh, are divided or have splits, adversaries notice that. Right. Uh, Angela Merkel is doing her valedictory. She met with President uh, Biden. Uh, elections uh, coming up. Armin Laschet is expected, uh, you know, from the CDU is expected to uh, succeed her. Uh, and he, too, is somebody who believes in European and German sovereignty. Uh, you know, uh, you know, Russia is not as big of a problem and we should engage Russia. Uh, Nord Stream uh, 2 is, is, is pressing ahead. What are some of the messages from that meeting that uh, if, if you're either Russian or Chinese, you're carrying away? I mean, right. I mean, if we're not strong against Russia, we're unlikely to be strong against China. Russia knows it. China knows it. Right. You, you know it. I know it. The American people know it. Well, no, you're absolutely right. And just looking at the Merkel meeting, I think a message that I would want Russia and China to take away from watching Biden and Merkel today uh, is that uh, Germany is going to become that the, that the that the German U.S. relationship is coming back together again. That it is going to reach the strength that it once was. We've got our issues, but we're working on them, whether it's economic or Nord Stream or, or, or burden sharing. And I think that I want those two, uh, Russia and China, those two to get the message that uh, Germany will bring other allies who might be sitting on the fence or lukewarm about one or the other, uh, those adversaries, that, that Germany is going to bring them along and that increasingly Russia is going to have to deal with a unified transatlantic community, and so is China. Both of those adversaries pre- uh, present different threats. Uh, they have different impacts. Uh, and so um, in China, particularly, is difficult uh, because of the trade relations between Germany and, and other nations of, of Europe and China. Uh, but I think the message has got to be that despite that, uh, the problems that those two adversaries have is not just with the United States, but it's with a united uh, transatlantic alliance and that we will work to you know, do what we've got to do to try to keep the Russians at bay on the one hand and China uh, a, a back in terms of how it infiltrates the economy and, and in, infiltrates society uh, through Belt and Road and, and that type of thing. We're going to have to do that together, and we're going to have to show that that's more than rhetoric. Um, and it takes us back to Bob Hale and what everyone said. We've got to show that through having political appointees who are going in and leading the effort to make sure that message uh, is operational and can be done. Uh, Scott, you've been uh, very patient. Uh, thanks for joining the, uh, the team today. Great piece in The Hill uh, on July 1 where you talked about Xi's uh, unique ability to blend self-congratulatory triumphalism with jingoistic uh, belligerence, uh, right? Talking about anybody challenging Russia, crashing into a great wall of steel manned by uh, 1.4 billion uh, Chinese. Um, the Beijing is, is uh, you know, right as the Biden administration was assembling everybody uh, against uh, Beijing, there was this sort of sense that Beijing might change its tone. It's only doubled down on the belligerence. Now, uh, Beijing denying Wendy Sherman, the deputy secretary of, of state, uh, from visiting uh, China, that was going to be a big meeting, been a b- largest meeting since Anchorage. Walk, walk us through the messaging uh, and, and what it all means as the Chinese Communist Party celebrates its centenary. 
Sure, sure thing, Vago. Uh, yeah, I think that it's important to say that, you know, the Chinese leadership right now is under um, a lot of pressure. They are watching their economy slow. They are extremely concerned uh, about the fact that COVID broke out in China and could, as we're seeing with the uh, Delta variant, could quickly resurge. And so they've been very strong on tamping down uh, trade and contact with foreigners uh, and trying to lock down any place where even small outbreaks of COVID occur domestically. Alongside that, to help ease the blow of uh, less economic growth, they have really ramped up uh, the hostility towards foreigners and the sense that China is uh, under pressure at the very same time that China is on the cusp of succeeding internationally. And so you've seen this rhetoric uh, that uh, is often described as wolf warrior diplomacy, um, the refusal to meet with uh, Undersecretary Sherman, I'm sorry, Deputy Secretary Sherman. Um, <clears throat> and of course, we've seen that in Europe too, where Chinese pressure and attempts to uh, subvert or, or coerce European democracy have led Lithuania to withdraw from China's 17 plus one initiative. Uh, we've seen COVID and the wolf warrior diplomacy combined to put enormous negative or downward pressure on views of China all across Europe. Late last year, the Pew Research poll showing that 71% of Germans view China negatively, and that's one of the best appearances for China's uh, image in Europe. Many countries much worse than that. I would just toss out one final thought before we turn maybe to China's uh, specific questions, Vago, and that is we shouldn't ignore the roles that Japan and Taiwan are playing in Europe, trying to help bridge transatlantic divides by signaling to Europeans that the only actors in Asia that they care about uh, should not be China. There are many other countries, many of them very wealthy, very technologically sophisticated countries in Asia, and that those countries, if exposed to Chinese uh, coercion or aggression, and Europeans stand by and do nothing out of a concern about trade, uh, could see their trade, their economic relations suffer if uh, Japan or Taiwan or other countries in Asia are coerced by China. Over. Uh, do do um, so. One uh, follow-up question that I that I, that I've got for you is, um, you know, the administration. You know, there's a little bit of a yin and yang going on, right? Um, you know, there are people now who are saying, well, this, this administration is too hard over on China, is being too tough on China. Uh, ooh, and that's going to that's gonna cause uh, problems. It, is the administration getting the tone right? And does Beijing see a cross-connect between our not standing up to Russia, for example, and it manifesting itself somehow against China and drawing any lessons from that? I think the first to the first part of your question, uh, it, it's very challenging to work with China these days on almost anything. There is really no issue, uh, even climate change or countering the pandemic, where the Chinese are not viewing that issue through a competitive lens. And it's worth remembering that China is simultaneously uh, perpetrating genocide against two or three populations, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, uh, the Falun Gong movement, where they're, they're removing uh, bodily organs for sale uh, from prisoners without their consent, and what they're doing in Tibet. And that's before we even talk about their violation of their treaty commitments to the British and to the, their promises to the people of Hong Kong. 
under the 1984 Sino-British Joint Declaration. So it, it is not the case uh, that it's easy to work with China. Uh, and in that case, I think it's quite reasonable to say that the administration is trying to compete while not firmly closing the door on cooperation if that cooperation uh, is in U.S. interests and commensurate with U.S. values. But I think there are some major obstacles. As the Chinese would say, uh, they are the ones who, who tied this knot. They have to untie it. And right now they show no interest in untying that knot. I mean, I think it's important to say the Chinese, and Rand has done a lot of research on this in recent years, um, the Chinese fundamentally are, uh, you know, the, the PRC is a learning organization. It is a country that is constantly watching and studying what's happening around the world. Um, they certainly recognize in Moscow uh, a partner who has substantial capabilities and enormous vulnerabilities and dependence that works to China's advantage. Uh, they are not likely <clears throat> to see um, a Moscow uh, that cooperates with the United States uh, emerge. I think they know that, uh, that Putin's basic uh, intuition and, and gut instincts are going to be to try to sow chaos and to cause problems. That's not exactly China's approach, but they can benefit from it uh, to the extent that it distracts the United States, to the extent that it causes problems that force the United States to expend resources primarily in Europe or the Middle East that they might otherwise be able to focus uh, more fulsomely on a, a countering uh, Chinese coercion and aggression strategy. Um, let me, uh, we, our, our time is uh, running uh, preciously uh, short. Um, let me move, uh, if I may, the conversation to um, uh, very quickly, Byron, you know, we're talking international. I wanna go to Mark Milley in a minute and get everybody's quick thoughts on that. But very quickly, talk to us about Cuba and Haiti and what do you think um, they mean, because, you know, all eyes are on whether authoritarian regimes can maintain power. Russia, China did that by moving proactively to try to con confine the internet. Russia moving in the same direction. Uh, and obviously it's been able to crush the opposition by doing that. Uh, Cuba had an open internet and now is being used as a weapon, right? So if you're an authoritarian, you're like, you got to shut down the internet or, or never have had it open. Talk to us about what you're drawing from both of these crises uh, in our own hemisphere? Well, it's it's just a watch item for me, Vago. I mean, I, I find, um, you know, all politics is local at a certain level. You've got 1.8 million Cuban Americans and 1.2 uh, Haitian Americans. Instability in Cuba and or Haiti will have uh, domestic ramifications. And as much as we all focus on great power competition, the importance of Taiwan, you know, what's going on in, in Europe, you know, what, what goes on in the Caribbean basis, basin has historically uh, garnered a lot of American attention. Um, so, I, you know, it's going to be an unfolding situation, but if things worsen in Cuba or Haiti, uh, the DOD so far has shown an unwillingness, you know, they're not going to send troops to Haiti, but um, I just think it's an item to kind of keep an eye on. The, the other point that I'd make, um, take a look at the UN uh, FAO Food Commodities Index. Um, it's back to levels that you saw in 2011 to 2013, which is about the time the Arab Spring broke out. And so this underlying issue of kind of commodities, food inflation for basic items, again, it's kind of counter to the earlier observation about US inflation, but um, you know, these kind of bread and butter, literally bread and butter issues 
um, can can really shake things up. And I just think it's important to keep an eye on. Um, let me uh, bring uh, Michael you in briefly because I know you've you've got to go in a moment. Um, how are lawmakers first uh, two sort of sense questions of you sort of like sense of, 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 of the hill? Is there a sense that the administration is being too tough on China? I suspect I know the answer uh, to that. And second, how are the Milley comments coming across? Because Mark Milley is, uh, you know, and, and the reporting of it, uh, because there are increasingly folks who are sort of looking at the delusionality of Republicans on the Hill and sort of questioning, like, how, how on earth can, you know, people look at January 6th and now maintain it wasn't an insurrection, it was a loving meeting, they were just tourists. And now even the base is repeating that, right? Like, we don't, nothing, nothing happened. How is all of that sort of playing up on the Hill on, bo on both of those points? So first, obviously, I mean, answer your own question on China, that the sense on the Hill is the administration is not being too tough on China. But at the same time, I wouldn't expect uh, uh, Congress to be too tough on China. I mean, don't hold your breath. I mean, there's going to be a lot of talk. But at the end of the day, I don't think there's going to be a lot of legislation uh, that's going to make things much tougher on China because American industry is very dependent on China and doesn't want to give up that dependence. And also uh, the cost of doing business in China is cheaper. So I think we still have a long way to go. Uh, to break our dependence on China. As far as Millie is concerned, look, uh, I've talked to a lot of members about this and, and other similar comments and situations. There are a lot of House Republicans that uh, privately will acknowledge that I'm sure that everything Millie is saying is 100% correct. And they roll their eyes and they rub their lucky rabbit's foot, just hoping that this all goes away. Right. But when they go home, they're going to say whatever it takes to get reelected and, and appease the base. Uh, and 2024 is a long time from now. I think many of the Republicans, like most of them, are hoping that Donald Trump is not going to run for re-election again. And uh, we'll have a different nominee and they can move past this eventually. But right now, the party is held captive and they're going to say one thing privately and one thing publicly. Uh, Jim, I know uh, you've got to jump out. Uh, and I do want to get uh, Bob on this, uh, Byron on this briefly, as well as Scott. But very quickly from from you. How, how do statements like this, right? I mean, you've interfaced with our European allies and partners, but also done so on a worldwide basis. Uh, you did it certainly in your repeated tours uh, in, in, in the Pentagon, but also in think tanks and in Washington. How does, how does all of this, right? I mean, at the time that the United States is talking about democracy and that we're the voice of democracy and we're back and we're leading, how does all of this discussion about, you know, uh, it was a witch hunt, I, I won even though I lost, um, the delusionality of it, the statements from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff comparing an American president to Adolf Hitler in the bunker is not kind of a good, how, how is all of this being perceived? Uh, and then Scott, I'd like to get your sort of sense on the kind of hay the Chinese are making out of this, right? Because ultimately their point is no government is inherently superior and we're as equal, if not a better government than this democracy, which, which has hopped the rails. Go ahead, Jim. Well, certainly in Europe, this feeds the uh, the, the flames of those uh, in, in various capitals who say that increasingly Europe has got to come together within the EU or under French leadership or whatever it might be. They've got to come together and put distance between the U.S. and uh uh, and Europe. Uh, you know, there's this, this strengthens the strategic autonomy argument. Uh, it's ammunition for those folks to use. And I, and in a sense, we've set ourselves up because, you know, we've always portrayed ourselves among the allies. 
uh, and among um, Europeans as the shining city on the hill. And we can advise you on how you do democracy right. And, and we've done that for years. I mean, I used to walk into NATO committee meetings and, you know, <laughs> you always felt you were coming from this, this uh, higher plane. Um, and now I think what everyone has seen is, number one, uh, not only did we drink our own Kool-Aid, but the Europeans drank it too, vis-a-vis -vis the United States, what their view of us was. So their shock in a lot of ways is, is a result of the, the view that they had of the United States uh, back in, during the Cold War days. Uh, and so, uh, so this is something that is, uh, that is um, disturbing uh, to a lot of Europeans. And some take uh, pleasure in that, saying now you've, you're off your high horse. Uh, but others are saying, uh, you know, we're going to really have to, you know, defend ourselves because this isn't over yet in the United States, this turmoil. And uh, and what can we do here in Europe to strengthen ourselves? And, and that's the argument of, of those who who are really pushing strategic autonomy. So it's got an impact uh, and it's going to be there for a while, uh, as long as the U.S. is going to remain in this period of turmoil, which could be years. Scott, how are the Chinese portraying this and taking advantage of it? Yeah, I mean, I think the Chinese view of what's happening in the U.S. domestically, as well as what's happened in uh, Latin America and the Caribbean, is that these are always seen as opportunities, uh, as well as uh, ways to paint democracy as failing or as, uh, as something that would hamper economic development and increase instability. Uh, at the same time, the Chinese have warned the U.S. Uh, not to meddle in Cuban affairs. They have also been themselves uh, active in trying to cast doubt on or, or potentially peel off Haitian diplomatic support uh, for Taiwan. So I think the, you know, the great game is certainly afoot uh, globally and in our, our own hemisphere, too. And the Chinese are very comfortable playing a message of kind of don't interfere in Cuba, but we're, we're happy to interfere in, uh, in Haiti. Uh, Bob, from a strategic standpoint, and, and Byron, you'll, you'll get the last word on this. I mean, news reports suggest that Elizabeth Warren has dropped her holds on uh, Xu uh, and Kendall, while uh, Peters, uh, at least at the time of this uh, taping, uh, may, may still have uh, his holds uh, on. Uh, Bob, I mean, how do you see this, right? I mean, you've been in Washington uh, for an entire career, your entire professional lifetime. Um, a lot of folks, you know, in, in Washington from an intelligentsia perspective is, oh, my God, this is really, really bad. But, you know, Republicans, I think, are getting increasingly open and honest about the kind of stuff that they've wanted to do for a long time, whether it's you know, more overtly disenfranchised voters, right? Under, you know, that the, yeah, there was widespread voter fraud and that's why we lost. Uh, we're, we're loop, you know, whenever there's greater, the bigger the franchise, the worse it tends to be for the party. So I completely understand we want to constrain this. In fact, the argument they're making to the Supreme Court is these are not racially motivated uh, restrictions. They're electorally motivated restrictions. We, we just want to win these elections. And if we disenfranchise people, we, we will win. Um, and, and so, you know, people have a tendency you know, for many years because of Trump have a tendency of saying, oh, my God, what is he doing? He, he ends up successively benefiting from this. I mean, I think people fail to understand 10 million more people voted for Donald Trump in 2020 than 2016, despite everything that happened. And had it not been for almost an equal margin that went, you know, that put Trump over Clinton, 
put Biden over Trump, that this was not a massive mandate from an electoral vote standpoint, right? So, I mean, what's what's your say? I mean, is is any of this actually hurting Trump and Republicans? Or are the things about Milley and what he's saying actually helping them? Oh, look at these politicized general officers. Sorry for the long lead into that. Well, Vago, I'd like to think that in the longer run, they will hurt uh, the, the, the Trump wing of the Republican Party. I'm not sure. But I, as I said before, I don't think Milley's comments are going to affect the near term defense debate. I hope they build a foundation uh, for the time when Trump leaves and, and cause the Republican Party to go back to a more responsible uh, set of actions. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I'm sure that's true, but I think Millie's comments further add to that foundation that, again, I hope builds a new Republican Party when, when Trump is finally off the scene. Um, Byron, you are a student of both military, political, and international history. I mean, what's, what's the context? How do you view these reports and, and how people need to, to think of them. What I thought was interesting is many people were making sort of Nazi bunker analogies at the time. And it, and it turns out that, you know, the, the chairman, <laughs> a historically minded Princeton, Harvard and MIT grad uh, was sort of thinking perhaps along similar lines as he was living it in real time. Yeah, I, th I think the word Reichstag was used. Um, look, it, it really kind of, you know, zooming out from all this, and I think, you know, going back to where the top of the conversation started about what what Congress will or won't get done, um, it you still see some cross currents. You know, Switzerland bought the F-35. I thought that was kind of an interesting counter narrative to, or they selected the, the F-35 uh, in a fighter competition. I think a lot of people thought, hey, maybe they'll, they'll go with Rafale for the sake of, uh, of some semblance of European unity. So, um, it's not clear that, you know, there's kind of a complete about face, but um, I've got to believe, you know, if we get through this year and Washington hasn't produced major infrastructure package, uh, you know, something along the innovation strategic competitive initiative that the Senate had produced, um, that the House is working on their, their own version and we head into a, an ugly, messy midterm election, it's really just gonna raise fundamental questions about you know, how much can people rely on the United States and what are you gonna to have to do to pull their own weight? And, and some, in some cases they're gonna pull their own weight and in other cases they're gonna make their own accommodations. And uh, you just need to be very, very much aware of that. So back to all these issues, I think they all come back to what's, what's the fundamental degree of confidence in the U.S. and its ability to act in a global and responsible manner. Everybody, thanks very, very much for joining us. We really uh, appreciate it. Um, look forward to having you all back on uh, again. Thanks very much. Hope you have a great weekend and a great week. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. 
Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.